Welcome to Corrod Core from Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish in Wadsworth, Ohio, with Father Patrick Schultz and Chris Serger, where we share heart to heart on topics of faith, culture, and life in the church. Oh my! Yep. Yeah, we're live. Oh boy. Okay. <clears throat> we're forty-five minutes into our uh, <laughs> <to> starting <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> oh boy! Uh, I, we should next time. I we're gonna have to bring two coffees because I'm already done with this one almost. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. And I, I'm just recently drinking coffee again, so this is like this is lighting up my brain that. like a Christmas tree right now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Feels so good. Are you saying you thirst? Do you thirst for I coffee? I thirst for coffee and Jesus, and He thirsts for me. Uh, oh my god. Who are you that He's thirsting? Okay, so for? hi everybody. Welcome back to our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I'm Father Pat Schultz, parochial vicar here at Sacred Heart of Jesus in Wadsworth, joined again by my awesome good buddy. I'm Chris Serger, parishioner here at Sacred Heart. Amazing man, father of two, husband of one, wonderful man all around. <laughs> and we're continuing this journey through Father Richard John Newhouse's book, Death on a Friday Afternoon, which if you've been joining us so far, it's just been, it's been awesome. It's been so awesome. I, um, I don't know how many people are listening, but I do think it's blessing people. Yes, I'm hearing... It's blessing uh, me, that's all, you know. I, me too, I mean, uh, but yeah, no, we've got a growing listenership, and I get some nice anecdotal feedback from people that I know here, so, again, like, if one person has some sort of experience that this helps their life in a way, on their way towards home, it's worth it. It's great, it's so good. So, um, if you're joining us for the first time, this book is a reflection on... Uh, the seven last words of Christ, and we are on the fifth word this week, chapter five. The title of this chapter is Witness, and the fifth word is... I thirst. I thirst. They thirsty, my friends. I thirst. Yeah. Th- this is the shortest of the words, right? Shortest of the words, um, but not short on meaning. Oh my gosh, and no. And he really delves into this. Yeah. There are a lot of ways to go through this. Because on one hand, it's just, yeah, he probably did thirst. He'd been up all night, being whipped, scourged, carrying yeah. a cross up a hill. And now he's asphyxiating on the cross. Yeah. But it means a lot more than he's thirsty. Yeah. Well, why don't you give us a sort of like maybe general overview or just some, I don't know, some themes of like where we're going with this one. Because there, there is so much in this chapter, but... Yeah. Yeah. So there, um, Newhouse talks about this early on. He says that uh, historically, this word focuses on the missionary need of the church. It's Christ thirsting for our souls, and so it leads into the whole evangelistic nature of Christianity and the church in particular. Um, so there's certainly that element, but I, he also goes into the whole idea of like. Christ is thirsting for the completion of his mission, why mm-hmm. he's here. And that ties into what we talked about in the last, last podcast episode about the, the telos, the end of his life, that Jesus was yeah, fulfilling a mission. Right, right. So th- there's that thirsting, but then there are all the, the layers below that. So, okay, so Christ thirsts for souls. We're supposed to evangelize. How do we do that? How does a Christian evangelize into the world? Are we, uh, by doing so, are we imposing our value system on other people? Like, mm. are we saying that our truth is better than their truth? You know, all of those different things. Um, and then, like, what is, you know, are we all supposed to, like, 
go to the Congo and, and start evangelizing people that have never heard the gospel? Or do I have something I'm supposed to do here in Wadsworth, Ohio? Yeah. Right. So it's all caught up in there. Yeah, there's so much. I love, so it, towards the end of the chapter, he references Fulton Sheen, which I've been thinking all along. I'm like, he must have listened to Fulton Sheen a lot or read Fulton Sheen along the way or something, just because there's so many moments where, like, his turn of phrase is, is very, what do you say, she- Sheenian? Sheeny? Sheeny. Sheeny. It's got a sheen to it. <laughs> I love Fulton Sheen. One of my favorite books of all time is his his book called Life of, or, yeah, Life of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um but the, like the very beginning of the chapter where it says, Jesus is the fountain, and now on the cross, the fountain thirsts. Mm. Like, so good. I mean, it reminds me of Fulton Sheen saying, you know, um, I'm born of a virgin womb, laid in a virgin tomb, and a Joseph did betroth them both. Oh. Like, that's like so good. No, he is <laughs> right? so good. But, uh, yeah, so like, how, how wild is it, you know, to contemplate the fact that the one who said, you know, over and over again, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, agonizes in the garden. The one who says, I, the one who says, come to me, I will give you living water. Like Mm -hmm. I will well up in you water unto eternal life. Now here on the cross is saying, I thirst. Um, like just the, the depth of, of the incarnation that Jesus enters so deeply into humanity that we've been hitting on these themes, but he didn't, this is not him play acting, right? Like he wasn't like the docetists were wrong. Like he did not just simply appear human. Right. He entered into the depth of it. Um, and I love too, like on, on 148, the, how Newhouse re- references, he speaks about whoever this soldier was who put a sponge on, whether it was a hyssop branch, a spear, whatever tradition, you know, is trying to figure that out. He said, whoever this soldier was, he did more than he knew. I love mm-hmm. that. And just, I was thinking about how, like, that was the guy who got to live out the, um, you know, Matthew 25 in the right. sense, like when you, like, when did we see you thirsty and give you drink? Whatever you did to the least of my brothers and sisters, right. you did it to me, um, which connects to Mother Teresa, who's brought up in this chapter, and that's her whole mission, you know. But anyway, yeah, just some just some awesome things right at the outset of this chapter. And I, I, sticking with the Roman soldier there, uh, it goes back to one of the things that Newhouse says earlier in the book. It's like, Jesus is not fastidious about our faith, right? Oh, yeah. Even this act that maybe wasn't completely done, born out of faith, you're right, it is that Matthew 25 and who not like we don't know what happened to the rest of that Roman soldier. That'd be a great book or movie, right? Mm. Um, and he did more than he knew. It goes to what you and I were saying in the pre-podcast discussion. Is like those things that we do in our lives that we have no idea the impact that they end up having on people mm-hmm. down the road. You know, the the thing that you say, the the, the nice act that, of kindness that you do. Like you have no idea what an impact that might have. Yeah, way down. We you know. Or as the Lord says, and Newhouse brings it up, but of the woman who anointed him at Bethany before the Passion, and he says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done for me will be known. You know, and like, same thing with, with this soldier. Like, you can't get to a, you can't go through Passion Week and not hear about this guy again, whose name we don't know, whose story we don't know, but this single act of kindness, whatever the motivation was, we know. Yeah. That's powerful. 2,000 years later. You wonder if we get to heaven, like we get to meet him and be like, hey, I'm the guy. I was the guy with the sponge. (laughs) And we're here. We're waiting for you. (laughs) He's walking around with this hyssop branch and the sponge. Ring any bells? Know who I am? (laughs) 
<laughs> so, uh, Father, for those who aren't reading it, you've said uh, hyssop a couple of times now. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, Newhouse goes into that. You want to talk a little bit about what is a hyssop and what are the other uh, yeah, pieces so, of the story? So the it was it's in John's gospel that he. So John was the only one who was at the cross for the the crucifixion, right? The rest had fled. Um, so we get these these sort of eyewitness details in John's gospel, the passion narrative that we don't get in the other gospels. For example, like what hour uh, was what the, all of this was going on, or what kind of branch was used uh, for this sponge to be put on for the sour wine to be placed up to Jesus's lips. Um, that John says it was a it wasn't a um, uh, an oak branch. It wasn't a palm branch. It wasn't a um, name another tree that I can't think of any tree Cypress? names. Cypress. Would that be in Israel? Sure. It wasn't any of those. It was a hyssop branch. And it's significant because you go back to Exodus, right? Exodus, where you have the 10 plagues where God is liberating his people from slavery in Egypt. The 10th plague is preceded by this Passover meal where God instructs through Moses Tell the people, procure yourself a lamb, a year old, male, unblemished, no broken bones. Sacrifice it in the evening twilight, which is about three o'clock or so. Um, take its blood. And with a hyssop branch, you're to mark the doorposts and the lintel of your house. And that would be a sign for you or to the destroying angel that um, for the angel to pass over your house. So the, the very thing that was used to apply the blood onto the wood that would be the saving sign, um, that same branch shows up again at the exact same time at the, in the midst of the Feast of Passover, at the exact same time when the lambs are being sacrificed in the temple, Jesus, the Lamb of God, hanging on the cross outside of Jerusalem, um, and a hyssop branch shows up again because we have the Passover of the new Lamb, the Passover of the Messiah, where he's leading us not from slavery to Pharaoh, but slavery to sin and death into freedom. Um, a detail, too, about this that I found fascinating, in Brant Petrie's book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, which is awesome. Have you read that? I haven't that read that one, but I've read other of his work. He references how the, uh, the lambs would have been basically put on these wooden spits. They would have been like... Um, not like rotisserie, but like they would have been hung up essentially on crosses in mm. in preparation for the sacrifice in the temple. So like it just all all the little details come together, and it like and the hyssop branch it matters. So John, who has the most extensive uh, the the bread of life discourse, mm-hmm. who was the one at the cross, right? Mm-hmm. And he has all the details around the connecting. The bread of life discourse to the Passover to the cross seems like he would have been in a place to know about that, right? Yeah. Seems, oh, and then he got to live with Mary for the rest of her life and yeah. make sure that he really understood everything. Yeah. 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 Huh. Seems like he had a really good vantage point. Yeah. That's why maybe he's like symbolized by the eagle who flies really, really high, has that amazing viewpoint, vantage point, you know. That's awesome. Gosh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. There just there are no coincidences, right? No. Uh, there are so many. Just when you start to understand any of these stories, you can you, know, you start to look at these. Let me go. Well, duh. Of course, this was to fulfill the scriptures, right? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, it's so good. There's nothing impromptu or ad hoc about what is happening there on Golgotha. Yeah, that's what New what, what writes. Pa- what page was that? That's on 151. It. Yeah. Jesus is called the Lamb slain for slain from the foundation of the world on this Friday called Good. Everything is at last coming together. 
This is so important, I think. We just dwell here for a second that there's nothing impromptu or ad hoc. Ad hoc meaning like like for this purpose, to this point, right? That the, the incarnation was not plan B. It was not the backup plan. It was not the um, like, oh, shoot, uh, God's thinking we, they really messed up down there. What, what are we going to do about it? Uh, it was from the foundation of the world that the sun would come. There's, there's a beautiful depiction of this, I think, in the, in the Sistine Chapel ceiling, the creation of Adam. Mm-hmm. So God, the Father, is stretching out his hands towards Adam in that act of creation. And God, the Father's other arm, is around um, this woman who he's Michelangelo depict that's Eve, right? So in the creation of Adam, God has Eve in mind. And then you see God's hand resting on this little child. And that's the Christ child. So in the creation of the first Adam, God already has the incarnation of the second Adam in mind, right? Mm-hmm. That, um, yeah, this was part of it from the beginning. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. And, and then it, it connects all, of course, to um, the Eucharist, which is our participation in that incarnation. Oh, this right? was so good. Yeah. Like on 152, in the doing of the Eucharist... The hyssop is pressed also to our lips, and we are joined to him on the cross. Our thirst is momentarily assuaged, but the wine also sharpens our anticipation of something still to happen. I tell you, I shall not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That when we consume the Eucharist, we're, we're, we're consuming the entire Paschal mystery. We are consuming Christ's self-abandonment to the Father, He'll say later in this chapter that the Christian life is cruciform in shape. Like, that is what we're being conformed to. And like he says, I I think it's in this chapter. I think Mm -hmm. it was from, but like, there's not two versions of Christianity. There's not like two paths. Like, the nice, like, yellow brick road, you know, uh, flowers and popsicles and gumdrops Christianity. And then you've got like the hard Christianity. No, it's, it's, it's one path that leads for those who are willing inexorably to the cross. And in particular ways, I mean, it's it's lived out concretely, I think, in, through our vocations in many ways, right? Right. I picture the cross like this four, four-sided beam in the ground, and off of the four sides of the cross are these roads, which are the four roads of the four vocations, and they're all leading to the same point of cruciform love. Yeah, but we consume what he did on the cross. Right. Oh, it's so good. And that that whole that leads into the whole idea of he is what he does. And yeah. that suffering on the cross, it's so easy. We've talked about this on other episodes here, and you and I have talked about this recently with our Becoming Catholic, our RCIA uh, groups, just that suffering is not a thing to be avoided at all costs. Right? Yeah. There is a salvific nature of suffering. Um, if there wasn't, Jesus would have saved us a different way. Yeah. But he didn't. And like, so our, our life is to, uh, as Newhouse writes, and this is exactly where you just were, the way of the Christian life is cruciform. Jesus did not suffer and die in order that we need not suffer and die, but in order that our suffering and death might be joined to his in redemptive victory. So those who have tasted of the wine that has now become blood are bound in con- covenantal solidarity with the one who is risen never to die again. Like our what, suffering. What page is that? I'm, I'm on 159. I know oh, we're trying yeah. to be better about the page references. So that's on 159. Like, yeah. What happens on Calvary, we are joined up to. And 
however, you know, there's many ways, and that's really what he goes into here. How do we join up into that mission, that thy thirsting mission? But yeah. even like in our daily lives, uh, St. Faustina writes about this all the time in her diary. Uh, it, you know, she could she communed with Jesus, and the he's constantly saying, like, the sufferings I give you are a blessing. Yeah, They are joined to my suffering for the salvation of souls. Like, don't... Our, our first thought should not be like, I have a headache at the aspirin. Mm. <laughs> you know? Um, it's a weird thing, especially in our culture, which is just so opposed to any form of suffering. Like, how do we make it go away? How do we make it go away? Yeah. But there is a, there's a goodness. Yeah. It seems so old school to, yeah. uh, to go, like, you know, Lord, thanks for this headache. Like, let this suffering be joined to yours in some mystical way that I don't understand. Yeah. For the, you know the accomplishment of your mission. Yeah, that's, that's, whew. as you're saying that, I'm just like, yeah, I'm thinking about all the ways that I avoid and hate suffering. Mm-hmm. Like what you just said, uh, I, I don't think I've ever done. Like the first sign of discomfort of a headache, I'm like, does anybody have Advil? I, like I'm looking at every woman who has a purse, you know, because like, they always have, you know, all the drugs you need in the purse, right? Uh, right. Who's got Excedrin, Tylenol, Advil, Ibuprofen? <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's so good. That's so, so, so good. Yeah, we, I think it's that um, that religious sociologist at uh, Notre Dame, Christian Smith, I think is his name, who speaks about the modern religion that is like the contemporary gospel that is in some ways in competition with the authentic gospel. He calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. Mm-hmm. That most people, if they are Christians, are more actually, when you probe, probe into their faith, this sort of moralistic therapeutic deist, that God basically just wants you to be good um, and feel good and be happy. Right. And he doesn't really meddle with you. He's out there, you know, mm-hmm. and he's there if you need him for something. But, right. like, he basically just wants you to feel good and be good. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the old Dennis Miller joke. You know, nobody finds Jesus on prom night. It's only when they've so screwed up their life that now all of a sudden they're going, oh, Lord Jesus, where are you? Right? Yeah. 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 But this whole business of like the image of the hyssop branch, cruciformity, uh, being united to Jesus and his sufferings. I love this. I, mean, I was thinking about our becoming Catholic people. This is on, um, on 153. Just the, the connection between mission and martyrdom. I love this line very simply. The church is sent to all the world, hyssop in hand. Mm-hmm. Like, like we are inviting people. I'm just thinking about our, our candidates, right? Like, they're, they're a few, like, two weeks away from becoming Catholic. Um, what does that mean? It, it means, first of all, it does not mean that they're, they're being invited into a way of sort of emotional or, f- like, mental, spiritual escapism, Right. right. The, the the communists were wrong. It's not the opium of the masses. Uh, Flannery O'Connor said Christianity is not like this warm electric blanket. It's the cross. Mm. Um, that we are inviting people not to a life of escape from pain, but a life of profound meaning. Because like there's there's going to be suffering plenty in your life, right. right? We don't have to go looking for more, taking more on necessarily, but to realize it all of it is is meaningful or potentially full of meaning and it can be united to to Christ um, like the cross was the most intimate thing that Jesus experienced with his father paradoxically and so when he brings us into the cross 
He's bringing us into the most intimate and most intimate of moments with his father and through the power of the spirit. Um, yeah. Yeah. And he's thirsty, right? Yeah. I thirst. I thirst for you to join me in this. That's what you're called to do here. I, I love he, um, this starts to lead into like, what is our implication of this as, as, you know, Christians. So, uh, on 177, it leads into that whole idea of that we are all witnesses, right? And witness, of course, is our English translation. Martyrioi, uh, right? martyr. Martyr. So we are all witnesses. We are sent into the world to bear testimony to this, what happened on the cross, of course. Remembering that the word apostle means someone who is sent. We recognize that all Christians are sent. No Christian can feel he or she is not implicated in the words of Jesus, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. You know, and and, and that's where um, he talks about in here that the church does not have a mission. Yeah, the church is the mission. Yeah, right. We have programs, and there are missionaries, mm-hmm. but the church is the mission. It's Christ's mission in the world, and so we're sent. That's what we're supposed to do. We're all apostles in that sense. So one of the major themes that we've been touching on it is this whole, um, so Christ is thirsting for souls. He wants people to be drawn to him. He wants faith alive in the hearts of men. When the Son of Man comes back, will he find faith on earth, right? That's a great question Jesus asks. Um, uh, Father Newhouse recounts this hilarious and wonderful story uh, when he was a child. Can, can you kind of go through that, Chris? I think it's, what's that, 154, I think? Oh, yeah. This is so good. So, and I, this is such a, a great story. So he talks about, uh, he grew up in Canada, and his father was a pastor. He was a Lutheran pastor. And he talks about, um, he's a seven-year-old, and he's at a parrot, you know, one of the, the tent revivals that his father is hosting. And they have a, a preacher that came all the way from the States. The States. Uh, so, and he talks about, how the, the preacher stands on the um, up on the stage and for a full minute stares at his watch in utter silence and everyone's sitting there freaking out or going like what is this guy doing and then he you can you can hear the voice in your head right yeah and he and he talks about he's like in the last sixty seconds thirty seven thousand souls have been eternally damned to hell. And Newhouse talks about it as a seven-year-old. He's like, sitting there like, what? What just happened? And, yeah. he, and he talks about everybody else is just sitting there nodding their heads like, yep, yep, he's yeah. right. Mm, amen. <laughs> amen. Amen to that. And then uh, he follows it up. He goes, and what was even worse, the next day, the, the visiting preacher and his father, they went out fishing. He's like, 37,000 souls are going to hell every minute, and they're going fishing? Three-day fishing trip. <laughs> Three-day fishing trip. Yeah. So he, he it, I love that story so much. I love how he's like, it was, I believe, the first theological crisis of my life, <laughs> seven years old. But the, um, I love how he talks about how it, it, it there, there was like kind of two, he was trying to figure out what this, what that meant and what people's sort of nonplussed like response, like what the heck, like, like maybe, so he was thinking, okay, so maybe they didn't care about these people. Right. Maybe they just don't care. Maybe my dad doesn't care. Maybe that preacher doesn't care. Like, maybe they don't care, right? So that's the first explanation. He's like, that just doesn't seem to comport with who I know my dad to be. Then he's like, so another explanation, this is on 155, mm-hmm. began to recommend itself. The mission festival preacher didn't really mean what he said. Not really. And everybody understood that except me. 
After a time, my initial alarm subsided as I came to think that he had that he and they did not mean it at all, that it was just church talk and not to be taken seriously. Whew. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I think there's so much that I think we have, that a lot of people have labeled just like church talk, like, I mean, like, we don't really think that. We don't right. really believe that. You don't really expect me to live that way. You don't really expect, you know. Um, but like these two movements of the soul, of his little soul trying to figure out um, how to reckon with this 37,000, you know, damned souls per minute. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, um, but uh, so th- that leads into like, uh, okay. Well, Jesus says he's here to reconcile all things to himself, right? And um, he talks, he goes into the whole discussion of uh, John's first letter where he says, uh, Now that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, that our joy may be complete. Which leads into, okay, um, do we really believe that 37,000 souls are going to hell every minute? Probably not. You know, as Christians, uh, as Catholics, the church doesn't teach that either. But we are, um, we are supposed to like, we are supposed to tell people about this, right? We don't necessarily think that we're going to uh, uh, save every single soul um, ourselves. Yeah. But we should be participating as we can, right? Yeah. So in 156, I love how he, so after that, that quote from First John, why the urgency about telling others? so that you may have fellowship with us and our joy may complete. Like, in other words, like, and he gets into this later, but so what's our, what's our, like, what vision of redemption motivates our, our missionary activity? Right. Like, is it um, stopping people from being damned? Mm-hmm. Or is it inviting people into oh, yeah. the life and intimacy and joy of knowing Jesus? Like, so I, I, one of my uh, heroes, an amazing priest, a, a Benedictine named Father Boniface Hicks from Latrobe, Pennsylvania, um, he tells a story of like you know encountering Christians in college and a, and like asking the question both rhetorically and actually out loud to them, like why? What's the benefit of being a Christian? Why should why? Um, and over and over again, the answer that he was getting from people was like, well, so you can be saved. Like, blah, blah, blah. He said it wasn't until someone said, like, wait until you live life with him. Mm. Like, living life with him is better. Yeah. You know? Um, this is what we're inviting people into. And there's an objectivity of, about it all. Like, if, if Jesus is Lord, if he rose from the dead, vindicates all of his claims, if there is a truth about him, there's a truth about our human nature, that means there's a truth about what brings us flourishing, there's a truth about what sets our hearts on fire and freedom and joy... And, like, we want to invite people into that. Right. He says on 158, the apostles, those who are sent us, are essentially cast in the roles of reporters. Or oh, yeah. Right? The reporter's not that only has the, has the storyline of Israel's hope been fulfilled, but since the God of Israel is the one God of all, the story of the world is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, which means Jesus is the appointed Savior of the world. Like, that's... You're right. It's not there. Like, oh, listen to me, or you're going to go to hell. It's like, no, we we have this news. I thought of this. This is such a trite example, but think of how we are 
when you see some great new Netflix show, right? Oh, yeah. You, you, you don't have to be prompted. You just tell people, hey, have you seen whatever? WandaVision. It, I've been told about WandaVision by everybody and their mother the last, like, month. Yeah. Like, I don't have time for WandaVision. It looks stupid. We, we evangelize Netflix. We evangelize new music that we see or whatever or, like, Restaurants. I got, yeah, yeah. You've got to have – yeah, you've got to go to – Swenson's, right? Mm-hmm. You, they have a new shake. Like you tell everybody you know, and then about Jesus, we're like, "Well, I'll do that on Sunday morning." Yeah, I mean, I don't want to impose. I don't want to impose myself on you. And that, like right there, that's a, a good moment to to kind of speak about. So he quotes John Paul II, and Radium Tories. Is it Radium Tories Omnis? Uh, Redeemer of Man. Uh, it, sounds right. it sounds Latin. Yeah, it's one of those. Um, <laughs> That the church never imposes, but the church always proposes. And what the church proposes is Christ. We, like, yeah. Redemptoris miso. The mission of the Redeemer. Mission of the Redeemer. The church opposes nothing. She only proposes. But what she proposes, she proposes as the truth. This is basic. It is so basic. If we don't understand this, all talk about mission really is no more than arrogance and presumption. <laughs> I think that's a good segue into that whole idea of what you just said, like, is my truth better than your truth? Are we really imposing our values on, on people? Like, what is our, our role on that? What do you, you want to... Yeah, no, I think that the, <clears throat> gosh, the, the, the supreme virtue par excellence in our culture today is that of tolerance. And, like, the, the greatest sin is that of appearing judgmental. Um, I mean, I, I notice little. I notice movements of that in my own heart. Um, I, I hear it very clearly in the conversations of you know the teens that I minister to, the kids in the school I minister to. Just like at the end of the day, you can be whatever as long as you are tolerant and accepting of other people's whatever, um, and you do not judge them. Um, the, the, it's, it's an untenable, unlivable and actually unacceptable worldview, you know, uh, like we are intolerant as a culture of many things, you know, Mm -hmm. like we do not tolerate child rapists. No, we do not tolerate human traffickers. We do not tolerate murderers, like a whole, the whole notion of justice, um, which, which is at the bottom of that desire, like, you know, amongst our, our, within the culture, like to not be judgmental, to not be tolerant, is this like desire for justice. You want to give people what they're owed or what they're due. Um, but like when you play it out, it, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't actually work. No. Um, yeah. Pope Benedict has a great book on this. If you ever want to read it called truth and tolerance, mm. it's wicked. Awesome. Anything that he writes is wicked. Awesome. I hope he's a doctor of the church one day. I know. Wouldn't that be awesome? It'd be so cool. And as you're you're talking about that, I think we had a long discussion about this on at our becoming Catholic session last week. Yeah, right? we did. Yeah, last Wednesday, this discussion came up about um, judgment, and like it's the worst thing in the world that you could be judgmental. But there's a difference between judging and saying like you believe or did this thing, and you are therefore cast to hell. Yeah, like, that's what Jesus means when he says don't judge, versus pointing out objective truth of things. Mm-hmm. Right? You gave this whole thing about. Uh, 
what this is water, you know, what is in this bottle, this water bottle. Yeah. Like, objectively, it's water. Yeah. We, there's no, dis- we can't disagree that there's water in here and yeah. there are words on this label. Yeah. Um, you know, our perspective of that water bo- bottle might change depending on where we're sitting. Yeah. But at its root, there's water. It's objective. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or like if I were about to, you know, if I go to the to the rectory, open the fridge, and I'm about to eat something that I think is is fine, and Father Joe walks in and he knows that it's actually like a month, you know, past its freshness due date, whatever, <laughs> and he's just like, well, I don't want to like judge Pat for his food choices, and I mean, I'll just let him. I don't want to be judgmental. Like that's not that's not a loving thing, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm about to drink something and I think it's what I mean, if I think it's good and it's actually poison, to let me drink poison, that's not love. No, it's not. Yeah. No, it's not. So he, he uh, Newhouse talks about this is is the church we are not we are simply stating what we believe to be the truth. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. We're not called to go beat people over the head with it, right? Probably the best thing to do is not like just find random people on Facebook and start confronting them or yeah. walking into people with yard signs in their yard and, and yelling at them and saying, you're an idiot, you're going to hell. Yeah. Right? Like, that's not the way to do it. Yeah. But if you're asked or if you're in a position to uh, give your opinion about these things, like we just, we preach Christ, we preach him crucified. And uh, so Newhouse says, uh, it is his, of course, Jesus' mission before ours. It is the mission of the one who on the cross cried out, I thirst. So we begin with by dealing with those anxieties about the cultural impropriety of imposing our truth upon others. We deal with them by packing them up and tossing them out. <laughs> it is not our truth, but the truth of the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you believe that, and as Christians, we have to believe that. If you believe that, like we have an obligation to preach this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and everybody has a right to know these things, yeah. right? Um, that uh, this is where he touches in on this, like, ignorance is not bliss. Mm-hmm. What do you say? Ignorance is just ignorance. Right. Right? That um, the truth is the thing, as Jesus says, the truth liberates. And, like, people have a right to know the truth. And I, I love how he says, like, on 161, so getting back to this whole notion of, like, the urgency of the mission, why send out missionaries and 161, he says, the urgency of the Christian mission is to alert the world to its story, which is the story of the amazing grace by which it is redeemed. Like, the world has a right to know that. Um, yeah, like, that's why we send out missionaries. That's why, that's why, that, that's us responding to Jesus's thirst for souls. Like, that's, um, it's the story that transforms. Yeah, and so he, he leads that into it this discussion. So, okay, so, and, and also, like, at very base level, like, Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, right? Yeah. So we're not to, um, we, we shouldn't reject what God tells us, <laughs> for, mm-hmm. for one. But he leads into this discussion of, you know, there are people that, the sophisticated thinkers that go, okay, well, if uh, we don't preach the gospel to people who have never heard it, then they never even have the possibility of rejecting it, and therefore they could be saved. You know, somehow in this the cosmic way that the Lord works, that uh, they could be saved despite themselves because right. they've never had the chance to say no. So maybe we shouldn't evangelize. Yeah, and, and like, like as he says in other parts of this book, he's like, well, the the que- like you say it out loud, the question answers itself, kind of a thing. <laughs> Uh, like ignorance again is not bliss. Ignorance is 
ignorance that what people have a right to know, they, they need to know. Like, would you have a right to know you is, is a thing that you need to know? Where is that? 172? It's at 172, yeah. Yeah. Um, the multitudes have the right to know the riches of the mystery of Christ, riches in which we believe that the whole of humanity can find in unsuspected fullness everything that it is gropingly searching for concerning God, man, and his destiny, life and death and truth. Others have a right to know so that they might have an opportunity to believe Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is ignorance. That just made me think about, like, in my own, like, in initial conversion, like, I felt like the, like, the treasure chest of Christianity was locked, and it was chained to my ankle by my baptism, and no one ever opened the treasure chest for me. Like, it was only in my sort of conversion, my junior year of high school, when, when I had all these questions, and I had adults around me who were like, can I show you what's in this? Yeah. Like, it's the answers your heart is looking for and seeking. Um, yeah, amazing. Yeah. He, he talks later on from there. It's like, uh, if Christ is king, and we believe he is, right? We saw, we have a feast, Christ the king. Then where is ambassadors, right? Ambassadors, we don't represent, ambassadors do not represent themselves, but the sovereign power that sends them. Christians are ambassadors of Christ or several. Where is their, say, saying what he said. Like, it's, it's that simple. It's that, this isn't my belief about it. Like, he said this. Yeah. You know? And, you should hear it. The my good buddy Father John Ricardo on his podcast a few weeks ago, he had this amazing image to this end about if we are ambassadors of Christ, then every one of our parishes is meant to be an embassy of heaven. Hmm. Think about that for a moment. Yeah. Right? Like a place where like you know, uh, expats can come and like feel and taste like a little like feel and experience a taste of home. You know, it's 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 home yeah. outside of home, right? American soil outside of America. Right. This is this little outpost of heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. Like the way people should step into our parish and experience like, oh, this is this is what heaven's going to be like mm-hmm. sort of. And I don't know, I didn't hear that podcast, but I wonder if he took it a step further. It's like what's one of the things we know about him? if you're in a hostile country? And you can get through that gate. Yeah, you're now in safe territory. Yeah, you're safe from the outside chaos that's going on. Yeah, isn't that what happens to us at the mass? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, so th- that's a good uh, segue into a, you know, Newhouse is still wrestling with the whole thirty-seven thousand souls are going to hell every minute, and if we have now these parishes that are the embassies for for Christ, he talks about like what's the reality of uh, our role in that and what's the reality of like the church actually quote succeeding in the mission right right he says if all the this is on 174 if all the christians in the world marshaled all the evangelistic resources imaginable and devoted 20 hours a day to nothing but relentless proclamation of the gospel how many billions of people would still be going to hell if this is god's plan of salvation for a world that we are told he so loves, it would seem to be grievously flawed. And then the next page, the derelict on the cross crying out, I thirst, return to the Father with one repentant thief. Yeah. If world evangelization was his goal, what a dismal failure he was. Yeah. Yeah, I I loved that so much. It, it yeah, it doesn't, yeah, it, it just reframes the question. Like, the the... God bless that that preacher, you know, but 
it's it's an overly simplistic and uh, just immature approach to the actual issues at hand. Um, that's why I mean, that's why I love being Catholic. Like we just get we we think very deeply about these things, mm-hmm. and I love that. I mean, I love that Father Newhouse has thought so deeply on this. I, I just I loved that so much. Um, I loved on, on one seventy six to that end too about the the driving motivation of evangelism. This this right here is the irrepressible desire to communicate which shall be on the basis of what already is, to which, as Peter said, we are all witnesses. That, like, um, like as a priest, like, I don't get any bonuses for converts. I don't get bonus checks for, I don't know, people liking my homilies. It's, like, all, all I want. Like, the only reason today... For a man to enter the seminary to want to be a priest, there's not there's none of the old cultural accoutrement that that it's attached to the priesthood. Like, you don't get a new Cadillac every year. Yeah. You don't have housekeepers. Like, like you are not the smartest person in your parish. Like all of the things that that I don't know made the priesthood attractive back then are just not there anymore. You know, and it's today it's because you've got guys who've met the Lord, were so overwhelmed by the beauty of His love. We're transformed, and all they want to do is, I want you to know the one that I met. I want you to fall in love with the one who've, who I fell in love with. I want you to experience the freedom that I've tasted because of him. Mm-hmm. That irrepressible desire. This brings us to 180, I think. Yeah, yeah. So um, so you just speak on behalf of as a priest, and I, I said in the last podcast that this is probably my favorite thing ever written in the English language. And I, I can, given that the Bible was written in uh, Greek, yeah. like I can get away with saying that. Yeah, right? yeah. So this is good. But um, it's something I've struggled with as a, as a layman <laughs> for, for a long time is this idea of, not necessarily that I thought all these people are going to hell, but I, I, I think I'm not unique in that uh, we can often get wrapped up in, like, am I doing enough, right? Either for the gospel or just, like, in life. Like, am I supposed to have some grand life and, you know, be on the world stage and doing these things. And you, you have this great story about uh, this vision you had of the vineyard that you yeah. part of that you're going to attend, um, which I, I, I want you to come back to. But there's this uh, new house is talking about like the answer to that is no. Right. Uh, and he, he quotes first Timothy here on 178, which leads up to where I'm going to get to uh, uh, in first Timothy. He said, uh, um, Paul writes, he urges Christians to quote, live peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Um, and in First Peter, maintain good conduct among the Gentiles so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Mm-hmm. This whole idea of we are called to do our little part here on this earth. And it's, this is it. So, this, I remember when I first read this, I went, I mean, that's it. It just made me feel so much more content with the life that I've, uh, I've not even chosen to lead, hopefully been led to, to lead, mm-hmm. right? Um, trying to discern God's will for me in, in big ways and small. Before you, before you read it, I just think that there's, what I was just thinking as you were saying that is how often the enemy accuses us mm. into the like, like, you're not doing enough. You're like you're not you're not being heroic enough. What are you doing about those thirty seven thousand souls? Like, what right. kind of life are you leading? Right. Um, 
Yeah. What about every homeless person that you walked by that you didn't give money to? What about every charitable appeal that comes in the mail that I didn't respond to? Yeah. What about every volunteer activity that I said, no, I'm not going to do? Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're exactly right. So, so Newhouse writes, this is on 180. The Christian life is about living to the glory of God. It is not a driven, frenetic, sweated, interminable quest for saving souls. It is doing for his glory what God has given us to do. As with the Olympic runner in the film Chariots of Fire, it is giving God pleasure in what we do well. Souls are saved by saved souls who live out their salvation by thinking and living differently with a martyr's resolve in a world marked by falsehood, baseness, injustice, impurity, ugliness, and mediocrity. I mean, that's it, mm. right? Like, just... We are, he, say, he says, we are taught not to complain and are braced for the everyday tasks of putting up with irritating neighbors and getting the kids ready for school. Right? There's glory in all of that. And it's when you can start to come to terms with it, and I don't pretend that like, I've got a grasp on all of this. Um, you know, I, I, I can think of the interminable number of Zoom meetings that I'm on for my job. And we all are, and there's that the daily grind that we live through. But it's hard to remember that. But if if you're doing it all for the glory of God, which he writes in Col- Colossians, like that's it. Like those little things of just living your life differently, with a martyr's resolve. Mm. Who knows who you're touching in that? You are witnessing. Literally, you are witnessing. Yeah. I'm one eighty two. Says Christ thirsts for those who throw away their lives in the everydayness of duties discerned and duties done. Such lives are a proposal of a different way of being in the world that he has redeemed. Through such lives, his mission is advanced, often in ways that that elude our sure perception. I don't know how many of you have seen the film uh, A Hidden Life. Mm -hmm. It came out two or three years ago. Yeah. Uh, Terrence Malick film. Mm -hmm. It's the true story of conscientious objector, um, from Austria, named uh, his his name is Blessed Franz Jägerstatter. Um, amazing, amazing story. By the end of this like three and a half hour long film, which is so beautiful, this quote goes up on the screen. Maybe we'll land it here. End yeah. it with this, uh, a quote by George Eliot, who I had never heard of before. I read this quote, said this: "For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts." And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Like this is, uh, this is the commitment that Christ is thirsting for in us. Like, sure, some he calls, and he's calling you, to, to great and, and historic and powerful missionary activity like if that's you respond do it uh if he's calling you to to today to make sandwiches and after school snacks and read bedtime stories great do it like that's what you're called to if you're called to just grind on zoom for the next like two three years of your life great do it it's what you're called to um that's how the hyssop branch enters the world. That's how salvation is brought. That's how 
Christ's mission is advanced. And I love how he says in often elusive and ways that evade our perception. So friends, thanks for joining us again today. Um, as we've just, what a, what a chapter, man. Holy mm. smokes. And again, as always, we just start scratching the surface of it. Um, Father Richard John Newhouse, you slay me yet again. So we have two more words, right? Two more words. Two more words. Um, all right, friends. Until next time, God bless. Thanks, Father. <laughs>